Ah, it's time to relax. You know what that means. A glass of wine, your favorite easy chair, and of course, this compact disc playing on your home stereo. So go on and indulge yourself. That's right. Kick off your shoes, put your feet up, lean back and just enjoy the melodies. You can't prove it. Oh, oh. You got nothing legit. Oh, oh. The glove don't fit. Oh, oh. You gotta equip. Oh, oh. I didn't smoke it. Oh, oh. That's all you're gonna get. Oh, oh. I'll never admit. Oh, oh. I never took a hit. Oh, oh. The charges won't stick. Cause Monday morning I'm a brand new man. Tuesday, catch me if you can. Welcome to the docket, episode 130. I'm Michael Spratt. Hi, I'm Emily Tammon. Hey, Emily Tammon. How are you? I'm doing just fine. How are you, Michael Spratt? I'm living the dream. Stacked two cords of wood this weekend. I've got baked beans in the oven. I think when I go back downstairs, there's going to be some really good smells down there. Got to rake a bunch of leaves, so I feel like I'm doing um, the stereotypical sort of fall activities that need to be done. Weekend adulting. It's better than weekend... No, actually, no. Weekend not adulting is better. (laughs) Way better. (laughs) But no, it's, uh, you know, rolling into fall, getting getting stuff done. It's nice. We have a really um, great podcast today. I've already uh, recorded the interview with you, so I know that it's going to be great. It is. It's really great. I'm excited. We have been trying to find the time to do a podcast about the Ontario Court of Appeals decision in R versus Morris that looked at the role that social context evidence in the context of anti-Black racism can be uh, used by courts in sentencing. And uh, the Court of Appeal heard the case on a panel of five and and looked at those issues and and how courts should deal with it in sentencing. Uh, Lots of people were talking about it on Twitter. And uh, I was glad that we were able to not only find the time to talk about it, but to do so with an incredible guest. That's right. We're so incredibly happy to be joined by Rhea Cash-Walters. Rhea Cash is currently an associate at ALG Law. I, it's Frankadario Law Group. Um, all these ALGs, AGPs, APGs. <laughs> I, I know, mean, your firm name is very similar. I'm part of the problem. But Rhea Cash is an amazing advocate. She, learned, uh, she earned her law degree from Ottawa uh, University, graduated like near the top or at the top of her class, did a bunch of moots. I first met Rhea Cash. Uh, in the context of uh, some prison law uh, conferences and work that we went to. And then um, she became my good podcast friend because she was in my ear all the time uh, on her podcast that she did with Kim Pate or Kim Pate's podcast that she did with Rhea Cash, uh, Appointed, which um, won a Clobby Award. Rhea Cash is amazing. She really is. She's a very, very smart, thoughtful lawyer. She is the future of our profession. I'm so excited that I've gotten a chance to know her because it's opened my eyes to a lot of new perspectives. Uh, Ray Cash is an incredibly kind, warm, empathetic person, but she's a deep thinker. And um, I was really uh, happy to be able to bring her into this conversation to share her insights. Um, Not only is she a deep thinker, but she's a trailblazer. She won the Chatelaine Trailblazer Award in 2020, so she is exactly the right type of person to talk about this case with, and I'm really incredibly happy that she found the time on her weekend to join us. So I think that we should maybe just get right to that so that we can get back to stacking wood, raking leaves, and making beans. 
but maybe there's one other thing we need to do first. I suppose there is. It wouldn't be a complete show without thanking our sponsor, Iman Publishing, because this podcast is indeed brought to you by Iman Publishing, Canada's leading independent legal publisher. Since I haven't asked Iman for an updated ad read or what they'd like me to talk about, I'm just going to go back and talk about their amazing new book on evidence. It's been a decade since we've had a fresh perspective on the law of criminal evidence. Iman Publishing is proud to publish its first treatise, Modern Criminal Evidence. It's authored by Matthew Gurley, Brock Jones, Jill D. McPeace, Glenn Crisp, and Justice Renee Pomerantz, with a foreword by Justice David Doherty. This comprehensive 800-page treatise analyzes evidentiary issues from Crown, defense, and the judicial perspective, and it features up-to-date content and real-world examples on a divisive, diverse (laughs) range of topics. This is a book that every lawyer needs to have in their, I was going to say in their litigation bag, but at 800 pages, it might be too big. It's a desk book. You should read it in your office, but it's going to help you anticipate evidentiary issues, develop practical solutions, and employ compelling advocacy strategies. And for our listeners, Iman's offering 15%, at least they were, I think they still are, modern criminal evidence. All you have to do is visit imond.ca slash docket and enter code Docket 15 at checkout. Shall we get to it? Let's get into our conversation with Ray Cash Walters. Ray Cash Walters, welcome to the docket. Thanks for having me. We're so excited. I sort of almost feel like we've had you on the podcast before, but I know we haven't, um, probably (laughs) just because we so frequently enjoy your takes on social media uh, in relation to a lot of the things we're talking about. And we're just so thrilled that you could join us today to chat about R versus Morris and some other things too. Awesome. I'm excited. We're excited too. Why don't you, um, already gave a little bit of your background, but why don't you tell us a little bit about what you're up to these days, kind of work you're doing, just so that our listeners can have some context about where you're coming from. For sure. Um, so I'm currently an associate at Adario Law Group, and uh, my practice is in criminal, constitutional, and administrative law. One of the things that drew me to criminal law when I was in law school, I'm a super recent grad, was the work that I did with Senator Kim Pei. We did a lot of really interesting advocacy, and I learned so much from her. And we also had a podcast that we created together called Appointed, uh, a Canadian senator bringing margins to center. And the podcast is still going, and they're still doing awesome work. But uh, I've shifted to a full-time criminal law practice. Um, I have a couple of fun writing projects that I really hope that folks can uh, keep their eyes and ears open for as they approach. I probably shouldn't talk about any of them yet publicly, but I'm really excited about the things that I'm learning. It was not just a podcast with Senator Kim Pate. It was an award-winning podcast. Congratulations (laughs) belatedly on your awards. (laughs) Thanks. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was awesome to have the resources of the Senate to be able to take the time that we needed to reach out to really interesting um, guests um, and have really great conversations with folks um, and also ensure that we're editing out the ums and ahs as we were talking about earlier (laughs) (laughs) so that we could have like a higher quality product. But yeah, it was awesome, awesome experience. And not to put you on the spot, but do you remember where we first met the three of us? I do. It was at the prison law conference, um, wasn't it in 2018? 
It was yeah. in Halifax when the giant um, tornadoes hit Ottawa and left my mom who was looking after our three kids so that we could have our vacation to a prison law conference because we're nerdy like that <laughs> left her like without power for 36 hours taking care of the kids while we were relaxing in a hotel it was great <laughs> oh no <laughs> yeah that was a time but yeah no I remember uh, meeting you there and a couple of other really engaged young people that were just clearly like looking to jump into this kind of work and also for me, that was my first time, like really exploring in more substantive depth prison law. And, and I've also since pivoted my career a little bit and I'm doing some work in that area as well. So I feel like that was a turning point and it was, uh, it was really exciting to get to meet you. And if I remember you and I met not long after that, because you wanted to pick my brain about podcasting. And then here we are all these years later and you started, did and left uh, an award-winning podcast. Uh, and now we're just <laughs> excited to get to chat with you on ours. <laughs> no, that's awesome. I really appreciate all the advice you gave me and the direction you gave me. Well, it's funny because I, I always joke because people often ask me for advice on podcasting because I'm involved in none of the technical side of it. I'm like, well, you basically just sit down and talk and then <laughs> through magic, um, a fully foreign podcast emerges. So I, I can never be useful on anything to do with equipment or editing. The podcast actually was born at the Prison Law Conference, specifically I was in the bathroom after we had been discussing sort of as a group what it would look like to, I guess, increase the awareness of what's going on in prisons and the advocacy uh, against uh, inhumane incarceration. Uh, I was just in the bathroom after one of the sessions and Kim came in and she was like, Ray Cash, are you in here? Ray Cash. <laughs> <laughs> that is so Kim. And no boundaries. Like, <laughs> and she was like, I think we should start a podcast like we were chatting about with L. L. Jones was uh, in the last discussion as well. Um, and it, that was when the podcast was born. And I was sort of like, I don't know how to start a podcast. And Kim was like, I don't care. We'll figure it out. So That's amazing. And the other thing I have to give you super props on is accomplishing in your short career something that I've always, always wanted to do and is on my like top 10 list of things to do. And that's working with Frank Adario. <laughs> He is one of my role models. He got me into so many things with the Criminal Lawyers Association and has been a huge mentor for me. And he has sort of the, you know, the Batman style and practice that that I've always wanted to have. So I'm so happy that that you're at such a great place and that um, you can help Frank learn a bunch of things as well. It's it's an amazing combo. And I'm was so delighted when I saw that you landed there. Yeah, it's a super excellent place to be. I learned so much from the super smart lawyers um, at Adario Law Group. And obviously learning from Frank is a huge blessing. Honestly, I'm excited to go. I'm going to the Supreme Court next year and I'm excited to be going to the Supreme Court, but I am a little bit sad that I only have one year with Frank and the other associates before I go uh, to the court and then hopefully can can head back. But yeah, it's an incredible place to learn. And there's also so many other great lawyers um, in the chambers. One of which is Anna Maria Ananjor, who was counsel for one of the interveners on the Morris case. And coincidentally, that's uh, what we're going to be talking about today. Segway. I mean, one of the reasons that we thought you might be interested in joining this conversation on R versus Morris is the thread that you posted on Twitter and just the, the ways in which I think you've been really effective more generally at drawing people's attention, particularly in the sort of Twitter legal community 
to developments in the law in, in these types of cases that are grappling with how what role courts and judges can play in addressing systemic discrimination within the justice system here in the specific context of sentencing. I think in particular because despite some lofty pronouncements, this just doesn't seem like an area that parliament is really actively working on. And so over more you know, recent years, we've seen really some of the more significant developments happening in the jurisprudence as opposed to through legislation. I don't know if you would agree with that. I think that what's great about Morris, and I, I know we'll talk about it a bit more later, is the fact that the court actually seems to hold legislators to account and say to the government, we actually need more funding, for example, for enhanced pre-sentence reports. Um, and potentially there's an opportunity to amend section uh, 719 of the criminal code to include Black folks as folks who should also be considered as over-incarcerated and should be decarcerated moving forward. So, I mean, I agree that there's definitely been some exciting developments in the jurisprudence and perhaps right now is an opportunity to shift to pressure the government to to make these substantive changes. Yeah, that's one of the things that that I noted in particular when, when I was reading the Morris case. And to lay my cards on the table, it seems like a lot of the things that the Ontario Court of Appeal says are valuable and good and sort of advances the, the way that courts deal with racialized individuals at the sentencing phase. At the same time, the application or sort of the mechanics of it the decision left me sort of deeply unsatisfied. And I think one of the reasons why that might be is because we don't see a ton of leadership from our legislators. I mean, the the court made reference to um, Bill C-22, which was the, the federal government's bill that would eliminate some mandatory minimum sentences and, and codify some other um, provisions. That bill, of course, died on the order paper. They also, you know, talk about Gladue as an analogy, but then look at Parliament-specific intent on enacting specific um, provisions for sentencing um, Indigenous offenders, but then say, you know, ultimately the, the legislation or sentencing legislation doesn't have provisions that specifically deal with other types of groups, so we can only deal with it on sort of uh, an analogy basis. And also, you know, being constrained by the specific principles of sentencing that may not, you know, do a, do a service to to racialized individuals and, and other marginalized groups when it comes to sentencing. So I think you're right, that tension is definitely there in, in the decision itself. I wonder if it, this might be an opportune moment to just take a step back for, uh, we have talked about the Morris case previously on the podcast, we think, uh, when the trial decision came out. Can't but we quite find quite that episode, find it's it. somewhere in the back catalog. But just um, for people who maybe haven't been following it as closely as those of us on law Twitter maybe have, this was a case that got a lot of attention uh, when Justice Nakatsuru um, released his decision. It's a sentencing decision in the context of a 23-year-old offender, he was 23 at the time of the offense who was charged and convicted with a, a couple firearms offenses, uh, possession of a loaded, uh, prohibited, restricted handgun, uh, carrying a concealed weapon, and two other firearms offenses. The really exciting thing about this case that I think we talked about at the time 
was the lengths that counsel went to put a really fulsome evidentiary record before the sentencing judge in relation to the experience of Black people, specifically um, in the greater Toronto area, with a lived experience and an experience of contact with police and the justice system that, in counsel's view, the court should be seriously considering and taking remedial steps, basically, to address the over-incarceration um, of Black people and the role that anti-Black racism, uh, the ways in which it continues to have a real hold on our justice system. Uh, and so with a very um, thoughtful decision, relying heavily on evidence of an expert's report on crime, criminal justice, and the Black experience, uh, the sentencing judge sentenced Mr. Morris to, uh, essentially, he said that a fit sentence would be 15 months in jail, followed by 18 months probation, uh, reduced the amount of that sentence to be served in jail uh, by three months as a result of some charter noncompliance and the rest as a result of pretrial custody that was credited at one and a half to one, uh, resulting in a sentence of one day jail followed by 18 months probation. The Crown, I think, was not from what you reading between the lines, the Crown wasn't particularly cooperative through the process in the sense that- I don't think you need to read between the lines. <laughs> I mean, at the trial level, the Crown said that, sure, you can take judicial notice that there's racism, but these types of reports uh, aren't appropriate. The people who authored the report, experts in the field, academics relying on academic articles, aren't really experts. And even if uh, you consider all that information, it shouldn't really have any impact on sentencing. They were, of course, wrong there. In the Court of Appeal, they modified their position to say, of course, we should have these reports, and of course, they should be considered. But in, in this case, in, in general, they just shouldn't be given this type of weight. So, I mean, I don't think you need to really read between the lines to see the, the efforts that the state went to sort of maintain the status quo. I was just going to say, I, I think I was quite disappointed also in contrast with the Crown's position in R versus Anderson, another similar decision, sort of analogous decision. Um, in Nova Scotia. And in Nova Scotia, the, the Crown sort of had this shared desire uh, with the interveners on the need for guidance for courts who are tasked with applying principles of sentencing to offenders like Anderson, who are of African descent. And there wasn't that same tension that we saw with R versus Morris. There was really an openness from the Crown that I, I wish that we had seen with the Crown uh, uh, in Morris. Yeah, that's that. That's I felt the same way, and I just felt like you would hope when trying to tackle issues that are as complex as this that you would sort of have a more willing partner. And I think that's sort of a bit what I was getting at before when I was also saying that the federal government, despite saying a lot of nice things, hasn't been that active in trying to address these things. So, I mean. Uh, if we can turn our attention a little bit more to what the Ontario Court of Appeal had to say, I think a lot of people were probably concerned about the possibility that the court could actively undo some of the good work that had been done by the sentencing judge. And I don't think that's what happened. I think the Court of Appeal agreed with a, a lot of the sort of principles in the sense that, you know, yes, anti-Black racism is real. And I mean, for those of us who think about these issues, it, it's hard to accept that that's something that should be celebrated. But within the context of an institution, you know, judicial institutions, which can be quite conservative, having a statement like that, 
you know, by the Ontario Court of Appeal in the context of a five judge panel, you know, just taking really at face value that yes, that's true. Yes, it should be taken into account in sentencing. Yes, we should encourage the use of these enhanced uh, pre-sentence reports, which for those who don't know, are similar. It's the same idea as a Gladue report in that uh, the court is given information about the relationship between the offender and the systemic experience of anti-Black racism and how that is relevant, you know, on sentencing. So like all of those things, I think, are viewed as really positive and necessary developments. But, but at the same time, the court did vary the sentence. So the court did find that undue weight was given to some of those factors and insufficient weight was given to the seriousness of the offense, or at least that the, the sentencing judge erred in finding that those systemic factors, you know, mitigate or lower the seriousness of the offense. Um, and uh, replaced the sentence with a sentence of two years less a day uh, to be followed by the period of probation. At least, thank goodness, all the parties and the court agreed that the sentence should be stayed given the passage of time. So he's not going to be reincarcerated. I think that's a positive development in terms of the outcome. But Ray Cash, what do you, how do you sort of see, you know, what Morris represents as far as a development, but also maybe a little bit about what its limitations are as far as judges tomorrow and the next day looking to this decision for guidance as to how to appropriately sentence Black offenders. I agree with everything you've said. I think the only thing I would say is there was one one maybe minor thing that I was a little concerned about that the court seemed to undo and that the trial judge found that Morris ran away from the police and threw away his gun in part because he was afraid of police violence and was concerned that the police wouldn't treat him fairly, right? But the Ontario Court of Appeal held that this was unreasonable. And I, and I thought that was really strange. Uh, first, because we know that appeal courts are supposed to give great deference to trial judges' findings of fact. Uh, and I questioned sort of why they chose to overturn this, this specific finding of fact. And I also think it's, it's strange because I feel as a society, we've recognized in the wake of all of the Black folks, uh, specifically Black men who have been gunned down by police, uh, that it's like quite reasonable, actually, that Black folk would be afraid of the police and would be afraid of the consequences of being arrested or apprehended by police. And I think specifically in Morris's case, it's it makes sense to me logically because they were initially pursuing him for a crime that he didn't do. It's kind of just a circumstance. And it's so ironic to me that it seems like actually a case of racial profiling in Morris's case. And it happened that he also had a firearm on him. And so he was convicted of possession. But if he was just sort of minding his business, walking down the street, carrying a gun for pr protection, um, and the police stopped him, it makes sense to me that he would run. And so the idea in the con and in the context of anti-black racism that we've seen and uh, violence against black folk, so that was one of the pieces that was overturned in the Anka decision that I was concerned about. I, I think that's a super good point, and I think it it sort of encapsulates what I felt a bit uneasy about this decision because when you when you break down the legal points, the the court of appeal says that you know, the, the offender's background there, the, the effect of societal racism and anti-Black racism um, has, 
has impact and, and plays a part in sentencing. They go on to say that it, you know, it doesn't decrease the seriousness of the offense, but it does offer some insight and understanding and mitigation into the offender and informs the concept of, of proportionality. But then at the same time, they use, you know, the fact of flight from police, which I think you've pretty eloquently described, you know, how that can be connected to the offender's race and to past experiences and to systemic factors in the community to increase the sentence. And ultimately, at the end of the day, you know, the Court of Appeal says we can use these reports, we can take judicial notice. Um, these factors are very important in crafting a restrained and proportionate sentence. Conditional sentences and restraint um, are something that, that should be looked at. But at the same time, when we're dealing with serious factor, serious uh, offenses, we can't go, you know, outside the established range of sentencing. But that established range of sentencing has developed in a context of prior decisions that don't take into account all of the things that this court says that we should take into account. Mm -hmm. And all of those prior sentencing decisions are informed by systemic racism that went you know, unnoticed, unaddressed, or unaccounted for in those prior decisions. And then to use sort of these, the flawed historical precedents to inform this decision, I think totally misses the force for the trees. It says all the right things, but then they seem to really have a hard time applying those principles. I think probably out of fear that people will say you're being soft on crime or you're cutting a person a break because of their skin color, which just seems sort of like you're saying all the right things, but you're acting in sort of a cowardly and unprincipled manner. Yeah, I agree with that. I think that feeling of unease and disappointment is something that was common uh, among a lot of the folks that I've been having conversations with. I think that when it comes to positive takeaways, I think it's great that Crown's defense counsel judges, other actors in the criminal legal system are being encouraged to read that uh, expert report on crime and criminal justice and the experience of Black Canadians in Toronto. I think that's great, obviously. Uh, and I think one of the challenges is that criminal defense lawyers are so busy uh, and have so much going on and there's so much pressure on them to identify every issue and uh, just catch everything that they're supposed to catch when they're trying to defend an accused person. But I really hope that this decision is a bit of a, a wake up call for folks who haven't necessarily considered race of their accused and considered all of the factors that may have led to where the accused person they're uh, working for uh, has has found themselves in that moment. So I hope that it's a sort of a clarion call for that. Um, but I, I think it's disappointing also that it took us this long for the Court of Appeal to just say, social context evidence of anti-Black racism should be used to mitigate convicted persons' degrees of responsibility. You know, it's it feels like something that we've been building up to for a really long time. And for them to get to that point of saying, well, it should be considered, but not going the full, you know, the full 100% as we saw in Anderson to say that actually it would be a legal error for you to not consider so social context evidence. It, it, it feels sort of a bit like an empty win. Yeah, and, and that work that criminal defense lawyers have to do is, is going to continue. I've got a case that 
um, I ordered a, a social context report for uh, a young black offender here in Ottawa who was also in possession of a firearm. When he, he was found guilty, we ordered a pre-sentence report and it came back and it was like five pages long. It was, you know, the most sort of generic and, you know, not deep report. And the, the amount of effort that I had to go through, and, and I probably should have done this from the get-go, but the, the amount of effort to get one of these sort of enhanced reports that considers all of the background factors, including systemic issues about, about race and marginalization, is incredible. It's not funded by the government um, because mm -hmm. we don't have legislative amendments. We, um, like we do for, for Gladue reports for Indigenous offenders, um, the onus is on you know, the accused person to get that report. And in this case, that meant me writing legal aid to beg for funding. Um, these reports take a lot of time to write. I, I had mine done through the Sentencing and Parole Project in, in Toronto. And it took them 40, 40 hours, so it was $4,000 that we needed to get from legal aid to, to get the report. And the results were amazing. I mean, we're still waiting for the sentencing decision. We're probably going to have to readdress the judge now that Morris has, has come up from the Court of Appeal. But it was like a 20-page substantive report that relied on, you know, not only academic research, but they went a step farther to get CAS records and employment records and school records. I mean, I think it is just despite everything in Morris, without you know federal the federal government legislating on some of this, uh, some of these topics, it's just another example of barriers that are put up to you know marginalized accused people to make sure that they're treated fairly. And it's super unfair to make those same individuals take extra steps, try to get extra funding um, to download that cost onto them or onto legal aid to, to get these sort of reports. And I mean, I think that that's why we need action from the federal government on these issues really urgently. And honestly, shout out to the founders of the Sentencing and Parole Project, Faisal, Anthony and Emily for doing this incredible work and for, I'm sure, being in the situation that you were in to say, well, you know, this isn't enough information for this accused person. It's not going to really help that much on sentencing. And then to say, well, we're actually going to create a solution. Um, and I, I love seeing that as a young lawyer. I love seeing that from more senior lawyers, just the willingness and the commitment to this work to actually innovate and to create solutions, regardless of whether they're funded. Um, and now it's kind of our job to really push to ensure that uh, those resources are funded. I think that's right. I think it's it's always at once inspiring and also disappointing when it's kind of left to civil society to fill gaps. But at the same time, we're not going to just sit on our hands and wait for governments to step in. And sometimes it takes these types of really engaged citizens to essentially show to the government the promise of what it is that they're trying to do. And so, you know, dragging the government behind that, I think the combined effect of the real success that that um, program has had with the court in Morris, then acknowledging the importance of that work, um, hopefully means that there will be real effort put into finding ways to enhance capacity so that we can have more of those um, properly funded um, you know, more people doing that work, uh, I think will be will be really, really important. But where I still and I, I'm I'm so happy about the ways in which you're 
reminding us to focus on some of the positive in this decision, because I do think there is a lot of positive as far as the articulation of principles and everything. But what I worry about is really similar to what we've seen with Gladue, where the promise of these decisions isn't fully realized because the courts are left in this really, like, honestly, I'm, I'm sympathetic to the tension that they must feel between you know, on the one hand saying this evidence is important, it has to be considered, it has to inform the sentencing. But then on the other hand, um, court saying, you know, it's not an automatic discount that's applied and the seriousness of the offense is still an important consideration. And so that I'm not sure that trial judges, sentencing judges are given a huge amount of guidance about how to properly implement these principles. And that's one of the reasons I was a bit disappointed that the court sort of tinkered with the, the, the sentence in the way that it did, because, you know, really showing some serious deference, I think would have empowered sentencing judges a little bit more to kind of take on this task. And now I'm just concerned that all of the right principles are laid out and everything, but that, like, I just try to put myself in the shoes of a sentencing judge and ask myself how to really implement what the court has said in Morris. And I mean, I guess a lot of this will get refined over time with sentencing judges relying on Morris, the Court of Appeal reviewing some of those cases. But I think that for me, that's one of the really toughest things. And we see that really clearly with Gladue, that its promise hasn't been fully realized, that the over-incarceration of Indigenous people continues to be a real problem, probably a bigger problem even than it was when Gladue first came out. And so, you know, this is where it seems to me that we need more than decisions that assert principles that tinker with the application of statutory principles and maybe a more holistic, thoughtful statutory, or you know, maybe this is something the Law Reform Commission can look at, but I, I, I think that we are gonna continue to see problems in the aftermath of this decision as far as how to properly implement it. Yeah, and I think you know this is where the me being an annoying abolitionist comes in because I think realistically the result of decisions like this right is that trial judges can say well I acknowledge uh, all of the uh, incredible historical disadvantages for indigenous and black folk Uh, it's you know horrible that the system is so racist right so I guess all I can do is you know send them to jail and it, it continues to happen. And I think that's the the difference that I find exciting about Anderson is that there was a conditional sentence permitted, right? And Mr. Anderson, he was able to serve his sentence in community. Whereas in 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 our case, we see that Morrison would have Morris would have been sent back to prison for a longer period of time, even though the court is acknowledging the effects of anti-Black racism in the criminal legal system, right? Um, And so I think what we actually need to see is a shift towards decarceration and a shift towards finding, you know, as the Court of Appeal said, more rehabilitative ways of dealing with criminalized conduct rather than, you know, just sending folks to jail. Yeah, I think in Anderson, Justice Derrick asserted that denunciation and deterrence should be informed by a recognition of society's role in undermining the offender's prospects as a pro-social and law-abiding citizen in a way that the Court of Appeal, I think, was reticent to go quite that far. And so, I mean, we've talked about this many times because it also manifests frequently on in the context of bail, is that we give, uh, we give people credit for 
you know, having strong social supports for having a job or job prospects or for having, you know, education without fully acknowledging the ways in which having or not having those things in the pros column, you know, when a judge is making decisions are informed by the very systemic, systemically discriminatory issues that that we're talking about. So on the one hand, I do think the Ontario Court of Appeal did sort of recognize that, but I don't think it really explicitly kind of tells trial judges how to grapple with that in the context of the specific, the particular offender they find in front of them. Yeah, that's, I mean, they did explicitly recognize that because of the societal context that Mr. Morris, what would, a, would a first appear to make him look like he's not remorseful or make him look like he's not an engaged member or doesn't have the prospects of rehabilitation, that that, that is informed by racism and systemic racism in society. So that's good. But then their ultimate solution is to tinker with a matter of months in the sentence. And, and that's the disconnect. And I mean, I take Rekesh's point that perhaps the conversation needs to not be how much jail, but why jail. Um, but that's, I don't think, a conversation that, that we're close to having. Because even when you look at, at Morris and, and everything that they've done, we still haven't engaged in a debate about some of the fundamental principles of sentencing, like deterrence and denunciation. Like, why is that there? Why is it principle, a principal factor in sentencing in so many cases when we know time after time um, we've heard, including from the Supreme Court in cases like Noor, that deterrence and denunciation sort of provide illusor illusory benefits. They don't actually play out on the ground like we pretend that they do. And when we don't engage in like those fundamental debates, like I think the debate about why jail as opposed to how much jail is probably a long way off unfortunately <laughs> big aside that's kind of my point about the need for maybe the law reform commission to look at this because what we're trying to do is we're trying to address the issue of anti-black racism but within the specific systems and constructs that are in place mm -hmm. without really recognizing that to to really get at this, we probably need to tear a lot of those systems down and whether and to what extent we build them back up is something that I think serious thought should be, you know, going into and that I, I'm not sure that governments are doing that. I mean, just the way the, the current government in the most recent election campaign, you know, tried to say that they had a record on trying to address the over-incarceration of, of certain groups with I mean, half measures would be generous, you know, really just like tinkering with a few statutory things, maybe increasing a bit the availability of conditional sentences here, ostensibly trying to address administration of justice offenses without, but leaving so much discretion in place that nothing's changed. But like Mike said, not actually rethinking, like should deterrence and denunciation even be principles of sentencing in the first place? Should we not be taking a more rehabilitative approach to sentencing generally. It's just, I, I, I don't see there being a lot of appetite to take that type of really structural approach to addressing this issue. Two thoughts on that, I completely agree. One is a quote actually from uh, Chris uh, Saratin on, on Twitter. I, I loved this tweet. He says, criminal law is to social justice as radiation is to medical treatment. It's blunt, destructive, and not a first measure. He was making these comments in relation to, to Morris. And I think that, you know, we have to acknowledge that 
we are not going to get transformative change from the Ontario Court of Appeal, right? But at the same time, there's some, there's a couple paragraphs that were actually pretty maddening to read. Uh, one of them was when the court says, uh, I'll, qu I'll quote here, in any event, the, rational, the rationale offered in Gladu and IPLE for applying the restraint principle differently in respect of indigenous offenders does not apply to black offenders. There is no basis to conclude that black offenders or black communities share a fundamentally different view of justice or what constitutes a just sentence in any given situation. And I was so challenged by this paragraph. One, because I feel like, was the court just not around for 2020? Like, I feel <laughs> like there's been black organizers, academics, community advocates in the US and Canada, you know, we have been raising this alarm about the harmful effects of prison for, well, generations, right? So we have, folks like Andrew Davis, Troy James, Ruby Gilmore, Rachel Zellers here in Canada, so many other folks. Um, and we know that Black communities have said, actually, we, we don't want more prisons. And, and the research has shown that it's, it creates this cyclical disadvantage that you were kind of mentioned earlier, that folks who are incarcerated then are uh, their families have less support and their kids have so many challenges uh, emotionally, psychologically often, and then there's less opportunity for gainful employment, and then there's less support of, for example, small black businesses. It's just like the cycle that goes on and on and on. And I think the courts, it was honestly, I was a bit offended at the court's suggestion that, well, you know, black communities have no alternatives to justice when realistically we know that there have been so many incredible initiatives and 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 uh, working community on transformative justice, on restorative justice. Even right now in Parkdale, they have the, these Parkdale pods, like mutual aid networks. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, we just know that abolitionist movements and advocacy for alternatives to incarceration and punishment have been developing in Canada for for generations, uh, and especially 2020. So. Well, and wasn't there also a line in the judgment, I could pull it up, but that said something like, it would be unfair to law abiding <sighs> black people to like overly discount or like, like something that also really jumped out at me as being like almost not acknowledging what you just said, that there are a lot of quote unquote, law abiding black folks who, um, who are abolitionists and who do think that the system is causing harm and who are not offended by the notion that, you know, reducing or eliminating carceral sentences for black offenders is a positive for the yeah. community on the whole. I just thought that was a weird thing to say, especially without any evidence to support it, or I don't know what the background was or the context of that, but I thought that was a little bit surprising. Yeah, as well. I believe that was paragraph 85, another paragraph that really upset me. <laughs> <You know. laughs> yeah, this <laughs> suggestion that, you know, there's law-abiding citizens in Black communities that really, really need more Black people to go to prisons. Like, I, I who, when, yeah. did, who said that to them? <laughs> I'd like to find out who was saying that to them. Uh, you know, we know, we just, we just know that Black communities have borne the brunt of this mass incarceration, over-incarceration um, in our communities and the, you know, increased police surveillance, et cetera, et cetera. I think it also kind of, it makes it sound as though folks in community who are the victims of gun violence have never, you know, been on the other side of gun violence. Like this idea that victims <laughs> and perpetrators are 
exclusive of one another. Um, it's not, it's a, it's a really reductive way of thinking through harm and violence in communities uh, and doesn't acknowledge that interplay and also the tensions that happen within even individual families. There was another part in the decision where the court was trying to distinguish sort of racialized offenders from indigenous offenders. And, and in that part, they said, well, you know, it's, you have to be careful to try to, you can use it as sort of an analogy and a comparison, but you have to be careful that you don't just import sort of those Gladue considerations into sentencing of, of Black offenders, because, I mean, the Indigenous population has a very different history and a very different experience and has suffered, you know, trauma and, and it's it's been different. And it's like, well, yes, it's different, but they can, they've both, like both communities have suffered these th things. And just because it's not the same doesn't mean that it's not, they can't both be bad. Like it just, it seemed like it was, the court was looking for distinctions and, and that might be a function of, of being an appeal court and being limited by the record and being deferential to parliament, which again is why I would, I would really encourage um, parliamentarians to look at, you know, specifically Paragraph 128, where the court says, you know, council's efforts are are not going to be enough in cases like this, and that we need resources for council to properly put forward the kind of information. And in that same paragraph, um, the court says that it's hopeful that this new federal government um, will renew their commitment to Bill uh, C-22. Um, and so, Really, I mean, if I take anything from that part of the decision, it's it's that the court is maybe acknowledging that they're not in the best place to, to handle this and, and they need mm -hmm. help from Parliament. And sorry, just one quick addition to that that thought mm -hmm. is uh, it's there's this weird way in which in, in Canada we separate Indigenous and Black communities as if there aren't, you know, as, as if my partner doesn't exist, as if my little brother doesn't exist and there aren't people who are both Indigenous and Black. And so I wonder, you know, what is supposed to happen if there's a person who has mixed ancestry and so does the black part of their their um, ancestry not fa factor into this conversation about uh, histories of uh, oppression enslavement um, and erasure it, it's it's strange and I, I'm not sure how to reconcile that yeah intersectionality is like you know, an, another level above, I think, what a lot of these... <laughs> if we can't get yeah. sectionality right, yeah. how are we going to get intersectionality <laughs> right? But I, I do think that what's positive about this, and I do think overwhelmingly people, commentators um, who understand the reality on the ground are taking some positives away from this. One of which is, I think, that council will be empowered and emboldened to continue to push for the Morris decision to be implemented in a way, you know, that gives as much effect as possible to what the court is saying. And so that's kind of what I was referring to earlier about how it will probably be continue to be refined as it's applied and reviewed and, but that council, and I hope also the crown, like I hope that crowns will read the expert report and read Morris and become willing partners in trying to address this issue. As you mentioned, Ray Cash was the case in the Nova Scotia case in Anderson, because I would hate to see this just be kind of an articulation of somewhat, I hate to use the word lofty, but you know, principles for change and then have it fall kind of flat. And so I think 
Council will have like now a new tool in their arsenal of recognition by the Court of Appeal. When you look at um, the in the trial decision, the sentencing decision, the number of footnotes and reports and evidence that was considered by that judge and then here the Court of Appeal with the benefit of multiple really engaged interveners working you know with communities that I am just hopeful that that as much as you can't really think of Morris as being just a beginning because it was the culmination of many many years of hard work by uh, lawyers and activists to, to kind of get us to this point but it's kind of like now we're entering the next phase and it's how are we going to build on this and and like you said putting some that everyone in the system needs to take ownership and some responsibility for making sure that that happens and that this doesn't just be you know gather dust um in in a mm -hmm. library somewhere uh and so i mean we can i i it's, it seems to me like looking at the type of responses just on social media and elsewhere from commentators that there is a real willingness within the profession to to really dig into this and, and be part of, you know, the solutions, finding solutions. Do you think it will go to the Supreme Court? Well, that's what's part of what's tricky because like you, you try to put yourself like in the crown's shoes, what role they would see for an appeal. The sentence was amended. So, I mean, I don't know. I, I, in some ways, like, I hope that it does because I guess there's always the possibility that the Supreme Court undoes it some, but um or whether the court would want to hear it. But when you've had a decision of a panel of five from the Court of Appeal, it does seem that, you know, there's already been an acknowledgement that this is a serious issue that needs to be looked at closely. But again, like whether there's an appeal to the Supreme Court, I'm kind of more interested almost in, in what, if anything, Parliament does to respond. Yeah, I mean, one of the reasons why an appeal to the Supreme Court would be nice is because, you know, this decision is very informative. If you live in, I don't know, Saskatchewan or Manitoba, um, it's certainly not binding. And I mean, you do have the Court of Appeal decision from Nova Scotia now, you have this decision. So it's something that would likely benefit from perhaps um, the Supreme Court looking at it. I think that that if it ends up in the Supreme Court, it's likely because um, the Ontario Crown will appeal it because that's what they did last time. And if I've come to learn anything, it's that even when you have good people in the Crown's office, even when you have a non-Doug Ford government um, who, who is, is running the show in the AG's office, Crown attorneys and the institution love status quo. And when things change, they don't like it. And it may end up there. It gives me some hope, Rayakash, that if it goes to the Supreme Court, um, that will uh, overlap with the time that you're there. <laughs> yeah, I think I should probably have no comment on that. But I do think that um, having some uh, helpful direction uh, would be positive, definitely. Yeah, I think so too. Well, I'm really glad that we got to have this conversation. You know, I think it, it's an ongoing conversation. It's, I do feel like the last couple of years have been really interesting in the ways in which courts in Ontario have been confronted head on because of really important work by lawyers in particular in really pushing these issues, but about substantive equality in the criminal justice system and how much it's lacking deploying, you know, section 15 in the context of a case like Sharma and that, it seems like there's, you know, it's kind of being attacked from a number of different directions. 
on the basis of extremely fulsome evidentiary records, which is not common in sentencing, sometimes even with interveners at the sentencing stage. And so I'm really impressed by the strategic work that's being done to try to leverage the legal system to be a part of the change. And I, I'm sure that will be ongoing. I'm actually excited to see what else is gonna, is gonna pop up in sentencing. And I expect that people like you, Ray Cash, will be part of the making of that good trouble. And um, so we'll, we'll be continuing to watch with, with really great interest to see how, how this continues to be, to be just tackled within the justice system. The justice system causes a lot of harms, but oftentimes, especially when parliament is reticent to act, which it, which it almost always is in the context of needed criminal justice reform, the courts can be really important breeding grounds for actual positive change. So let's hope that that work continues. And before we go, Ray Akash, where can people find you if they want to not just hear about your Twitter threads on our podcast, but actually um, read them for themselves? Yeah, I mean, thankfully, I have this uh, strange, unique name. And so I have the Twitter handle of at Ray Cash, at R-E-A-K-A-S-H. So folks can engage with uh, my thoughts there. Uh, you can also reach out via my email uh, on the Adario website. Uh, all of my information is there too. And I just want to say again that, you know, this decision and the progress we've made on acknowledging anti-Black racism is a result of super smart lawyers, um, many of which we mentioned in this conversation. But I think it's also really important to, to make clear that Black communities have been advocating and litigating and lobbying on systemic change and, and, and systemic transformation in sentencing since the Canadian states started placing people in cages. And so I'm really, really grateful to that work. And I also just want to say that a lot of my thoughts and reflections are not just from me, and they're actually a result of having conversations with folks like my partner, Chris, and friends like Anthony Morgan, and, and Kathy Abdi-Rashid, and through reading the work of uh, folks like Nana, Yanifal, Moya Teklu, Chris Rudniki, Lisa Kerr, Deborah Parks, uh, so many other folks. Uh, I, I, I don't like this kind of like cult of individual personality, so I just want to be clear that we all learn together and, and build off of each other's knowledge. And I'm so grateful that you folks have this resource, have this podcast, um, so that people who maybe don't have time to sit down for five hours and read Anderson and Morris, that they can, you know, get the hot takes and, and uh, uh, quick summaries from, from you folks. So thank you. Thank you for that reminder too. That is so important. And like I said, we'll be continuing to find ways to highlight that work. And, you know, I know that we can all have confidence that it will be ongoing. So again, thank you for joining us and uh, taking time out of a precious weekend. <laughs> We're just really grateful um, for your insights. Thanks so much. No worries. Thank you to Jeremy Fisher for allowing us to use his awesome song, Uh-Oh, as our introduction music. You can check out more at the podcast page at michaelspratt.com, or you can subscribe to the docket on iTunes. If you like it, spread the word. You can follow Emily on Twitter at Emily Tamman, and you can follow me on Twitter at Emily Spratt. You can't prove it, oh, oh, you got nothing legit, oh.